Hiya, Becky here from the New Economics Foundation. In episodes five and six of our Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism, we're bringing the story up to the present day, or almost the present day. You see, Kirsty and James recorded these back in August 2015, which feels like a million years ago. We still think they're worth listening to, but it's worth keeping in mind that a lot has changed since then. The good news is, James and Kirsty will be back for a brand new update episode in a couple of weeks. They'll be telling the story of the backlash against neoliberalism over the past few years and bringing us bang up to date on the alternatives. But for now, on with the show. Well, as I said, it is, this is more of the same. This is the same with Nobson. Having won a, a slender majority... <laughs> having won a slender majority... The same majo- with Nobson. The same with Nobson. You look, does that make any sense at all, the same with Nobson? It doesn't, does it? <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and this is episode five of our mini-series, A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. This episode is called The End of History, and I'm chatting to James Meadway from the New Economics Foundation about how neoliberalism lives on today. A new dawn has broken, has it not? And it is wonderful. We always said that if we had the courage to change, then we could do it. And we did it. Peter Madison, I mean, you in the past have been terribly relaxed about people becoming, I think your expression was filthy rich. And I have said before, Mr. Deputy Speaker, no return to boom and bust. David Cameron has used the starkest language yet to describe how dealing with a record deficit would change our whole way of life. The decisions we make would affect every single person in this country. And the effects of those decisions will stay with us for years. Our long-term economic plan, our long-term economic plan, long-term plan, our long-term economic plan, our long-term economic plan. So James, in the last episode, we talked about the specifics of neoliberalism in the UK and how it has come to dominate politics here. Um, But like mullets and Charles and Di, that was just an 80s thing, right? Well, not entirely. I mean, this is ongoing uh, as a project. In particular, when you have the the arrival of new Labour, uh, of Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party, backed up by uh, Gordon Brown as his Chancellor, with a very definite vision of how they're going to try and run the country along neoliberal lines, but being a bit nicer about it. This is sort of happy face neoliberalism compared to to Margaret Thatcher. So that's neoliberalism in power as well. And you see a similar process, of course, with Bill Clinton uh, in the US or or Gerhard Schroeder at the same time in Germany, that the centre-left in general goes neoliberal over the 1990s and into the 2000s. New Labour was famous for spending loads of money on public services, some say too much. Uh... How is that neoliberal? Well, as I said, New Labour has this take on neoliberalism where you kind of accept 
pretty much every dot and comma of it, but then try and do it a bit more nicely. So you say, OK, we're going to actually increase, and they do increase uh, spending on public services. We're going to try and ameliorate some of the worst excesses of the kind of Thatcherite approach to this. We'll soften some of the edges. But the underlying drive of how the government thinks it's doing economic policy in particular is basically neoliberal. It's all about how do you create a space in which companies can compete with each other? How do you minimise government interference and all of this? How do you uh, allow, in particular, financial markets, uh, let them loose, let them give them free reign to expand and innovate and do all the wonderful, clever things that we all all know about by this point? That's how New Labour thinks about the world. It thinks about the world in a neoliberal way, but it tries to soften the edges a little bit. Okay, so just to make it a little bit more concrete, can you give me a specific example of a, a neoliberal New Labour policy? Well, it's one of the very, very first things they did on arrival in office in May 1997. It was Gordon Brown's first announcement as, as the Chancellor, as he was back then, was to make the Bank of England independent, so to free it from government control, to remove it really from any uh, democratic oversight and hand over control of the Bank of England to the Monetary Policy Committee, this group of uh, would-be experts who, who set interest rate policy. Now, this is very, very neoliberal, because what you're doing is saying that technical expertise trumps democratic control, and that's a very definitely neoliberal claim about the world. You want democracy squeezed out of the way. And you do this in the belief that you'll get better economic outcomes as a result. And Brown consistently as Chancellor hailed this as as one of his best and most innovative, uh, brightest ideas that he had. Okay, James, but then we reached 2008 and obviously financial capital hits a bit of a wall, a considerable wall. Um, Surely this is a a crisis point for neoliberals the world over. Yeah, it is. And and for a while it looks like, and lots of people get very excited that this is a, a a crisis of capitalism right at the dead centre of the system. Financial markets collapse, financial institutions collapse, uh, the world economy shrinks. I mean, everything looks pretty disastrous. And the response you get immediately from governments, more or less immediately, there was some delay and panic and running around, uh, rather like headless chickens for, for a brief period at the end of 2008. The response you get from governments is kind of not really neoliberal, or at least it doesn't look so neoliberal, in that they intervene hugely to try and support um, financial markets and support these financial institutions that are failing. An extraordinary time with financial markets ceasing to work. The government cannot just leave people on their own to be buffeted about. British banks are being strengthened today through the injection of nearly £50 billion of new capital. These are the bailouts. These are incredibly expensive. I mean, the cost for Britain on the International Monetary Fund estimate is we spent about £1.2 trillion bailing out the banks. That's direct and indirect costs. This is the total amount of support offered. So this is a huge government intervention. Banks are nationalised and part national. It looks like neoliberalism's finished, but what you see emerging after a while is that we've kind of spent all this money to keep things more or less exactly as they were before the crash. We've paid all this money out. We've borne the costs of this very, very sharp recession. And at the end of it, everything still seems to be pretty much as it always was. The nationalised banks continue in their nationalised form, but they continue to operate as neoliberal institutions. They continue to try and make profits. They continue to do more or less the things they were doing before the crash happened in the first place. So it's a crisis, but it's one that neoliberalism rides through. Okay, so you, you, um, you mentioned really there that the people uh, ended up kind of kind of pay, paying the cost of, of the private failings. Is austerity then a, a neoliberal policy or a reaction to 
to these these events. Well, that, that's exactly what what we get after the uh, creation of the coalition government in, in um, May 2010. So it's coalition between Conservatives and, and Liberal Democrats committed to what is at the time uh, a very severe program of, of spending cuts, the, the deepest really for, for generations in this country. Uh, they don't entirely get all the way through that program of cuts because you know, the economy kind of tanks and they have to row back a bit. But they've definitely committed to shrinking the amount of government spending that's taking place on the pretext that the deficit is too big, the, the amount of money uh, the government is spending relative to taxes, the gap between those two things is too big, the national debt is too high, so they have to shrink spending. That's the rhetoric around it. I don't know whether Gordon Brown and David Cameron would take up this invitation, is that regardless of the outcome of the general election, that we get the Chancellor and the Shadow Chancellors together, the Governor of the Bank of England, the Head of the Financial Services Authority, to come clean with you about how big this structural deficit is. It's estimated to be somewhere around £70 billion and straight with you, finally, about how long it is going to take to David fill Cameron. That. There's no doubt the country is going to have to come together to deal with this really big problem of the deficit. I mean, for every £4 that we spend... What it appears to be clouding over, or at least covering up for, and this becomes very apparent after the election, the general election this year, is basically a long-term programme of shrinking the size of the state in general. So it's very, very neoliberal. And really, there's a programme behind it to put neoliberal back on course after you've got through 2008 and get us even further down the line that, that Thatcher laid out for this society uh, all those years ago. That's what we've got now with this government is a continuation of, of what Thatcher was trying to achieve. OK, so are there other neoliberal policies that the coalition pursued? Well, there's quite a few. I mean, the one that leaps out for, for the coalition government 2010 is, of course, what happens to higher education, where you have this uh, effort made to effectively entirely privatise uh, higher education funding, or almost entirely privatise it. You whack up uh, the fees that, that uh, universities are allowed to charge. You cut massively back on spending. You create uh, a market for higher education in a way that didn't really quite exist before. And you can see some of the consequences of this. Of course, one of them is, is the ballooning of students debt, which is going to be very, very costly uh, for all of us running into uh, into the future. Uh, and that's a very, very neoliberal approach to a particular issue around higher education funding. And that's a general way that the coalition acts. It sort of it drops a lot of the fluffier stuff that New Labour try to do. It drops the idea that, you know, government should spend a bit of money here and there. And it starts to reassert really sort of hardline neoliberal uh, ideas really uh, taken over from Thatcher and perhaps Major before uh, after her. Yes, taking those tough decisions that they uh, can't stop reminding us about. Um, and so what about the Conservative government now? Well, as I said, it is, this is more of the same. It, it's a continuation of what we've seen since 2010. This is an acceleration of austerity, um, slower than, than they were threatening before the election, but still at an accelerated pace. It's also combined with a lot of rhetoric from George Osborne about how they're resetting and redefining the centre ground in British politics. And really, you can see that's lurking behind this is the idea that Thatcher's business was unfinished, that the neoliberal revolution there would, did not reach an endpoint of a real neoliberalised society. We still do have things like a welfare state, an NHS, a, a large government that intervenes in lots and lots of different ways. And that there's an attempt being made here to squeeze that out of the way, to transform how British society operates and, and to get you to something that perhaps that you would recognise and think was a, a wonderful, happy place to live. OK, so in spite of the crash, neoliberalism sounds like it's just lumbering on uh, happily. Um, in terms of economic ideas, James, is this it? 
Well, the neoliberals would would like to think that this is it, that there is no other uh, alternative, as uh, Thatcher famously uh, said herself. There's even an argument from Francis Fukuyama back in 1989 that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, this was the end of history. There'll be no other uh, competing ideologies against neoliberal capitalism out there. And this really would be it for humanity from here on in. It's fairly safe to say that actually history has not uh, in any sense uh, ended by this point. And that actually, if you look, if you look across Europe, if you look across the world in general today, there are any number of different alternative ways of thinking about the world and thinking about how you might organise society and organise the economy. And some of these, I think, particularly in the wake of the crash, are finally starting to gain some traction and some sort of popular support. Okay, so a little bit of a spoiler alert, James, because that is exactly what we are going to be talking about in the next issue of the podcast. So come armed with some very exciting ideas for um, our fans. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you. If you want to help us touch more ears with our kick-ass brand of economicsy goodness, uh, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a cheeky rating, unless it's just uh, one star, and tell all you see on Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, and that new hip cool platform that I'm certainly not aware of yet. We'll be back at the same time next week. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.